Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Mendy Yuri. The Futures and Foresight community comprises a remarkable and diverse group of individuals who span academic, commercial and social interests. At FuturePod, we seek to honour and to learn from the wisdom of those who have established and developed our field, to connect and support the practice of those who work in this space, and most importantly, to give pathways and inspiration to those who wish to join us in creating humane and better futures for ourselves and those who come after us. Kat Smith is an experienced, values-based leader with 30-plus years' experience in the non-government sector and a background in policy advice and negotiation with sector leaders, governments and other stakeholders. Kath ran the community sector peak body VCOS, that's the Victorian Council of Social Services, for 10 years and now works as an independent consultant as principal of ChangeSmith Consulting, helping non-profits government agencies and different service delivery collaborative bodies plan their future directions and engage their stakeholders effectively. Kath is an industry superannuation trustee as the, nominate, as the nominee of ACOS on the HESTA board. She is a trustee of the Australian Communities Foundation and chairs their philanthropy and impact committee. Kath is also a community business observer on the Inner Melbourne Regional Partnership and chairs the school council of Collingwood College, where her daughter goes to school. Kath moved to Melbourne from England in the 1980s and has a partner and a daughter. Welcome to FuturePod, Kath. Thank you. So, Kath, from that introduction, I gather that you were working at VCOS for some time before you actually met Futures. Could you tell us a little bit about your story? What was it about Futures at that particular time that attracted you? Well, when I think about the question of when did I get involved in Futures, it well predates coming across, you know, training in foresight. My parents were both teachers and very you know, very interested in social cause and and constantly analysing things and even now Um, They're both in their 80s and they have very forensic analysis of what's happening in society and I was brought up with that expectation. And so when I uh, when I first came to Australia and I trained originally as an ecologist, I was you know I was very active in the peace movement. I worked full time in the environmental movement and futures at that time was, you know, trying to raise awareness of big issues facing the planet and facing um, society. And so I was doing that for a long time. You know, I was doing that in the 80s. I was doing international in the 90s. And then I was working for VCOS in the 2000s. And so for me, it was really quite fantastic when I, you know, discovered this thing called foresight and that you could do this thing called a master's in strategic foresight, where I'd spent years working as a leader and a manager in in, um, kind of cause or, you know, for purpose organisations. And it gave so many frameworks that really helped when you've been surrounded with key result areas and KPIs and very linear models of of planning, particularly for issues and causes that are really complex and multifaceted. The foresight tools and methodologies were an absolute, you know, it just absolutely changed my life. It was really quite fantastic. It gave me a whole new breath of enthusiasm to work on difficult and complex issues. Mm. 
And you would have also met a number of people doing the same same thing and so you were not short of motivation to do to do what you wanted to do, but the tools themselves and the approaches were the helpful things, the frameworks. The tools and frameworks, and I suppose part of this is thinking about, you know, who were the people that I really kind of looked up to mm-hmm. and that were my mentors and, and heroes over the years. And again, that was long before I hit formal foresight. I worked with a, a man called Lee Holloway in the 80s, who's passed away sadly now, but he was someone, he went to community meetings in Tasmania in the 80s and where people were trying to save the Franklin River. And he said, we're going to need to raise a million dollars to do this. And everyone said, oh, we can't do that. And so he then went out and raised a million dollars and the campaign saved the Franklin River. And he was always someone who would say, yes, we can. And he had that incredible positive can do. If we just explain it to people and make it exciting, they'll want to be part of it. And it was such a joy working um, with and for Lee over a number of years. Also in the 80s, Wendy Lowenstein, who's a very long-term activist around the left and the peace movement, she spotted me in an office somewhere in the late 80s and said, when I was about 25, and she said, oh, Kath, you'll be emceeing the Palm Sunday rally. And that was back in the days where 30,000 people would come to the Palm Sunday rally. And I said, oh, oh no, I won't be doing that. She said, oh, yes, you will. And she was a formidable person, Wendy. And uh, there was no question about the fact that if she decided I was doing something, there wasn't any escape. And so that was when I was forced into emceeing a very large group of people. And it was remarkably easy because everyone wanted to be there and everyone was in the mood. So it actually, there were were people like that who've just been remarkable mentors and, and heroes to me. Oxfam Hong Kong. Chan Yao Chan, who was the head of Oxfam Hong Kong in the 90s. I was getting a bit exhausted at Oxfam. We were doing a whole lot of work internationally and and, uh, Chan Yao sort of took me aside one time and I'd been in the place for 10 years and he said, Cass, you know, really great leaders, they stay in places and they keep doing things longer than they think they can. I said, I've been here 10 years, isn't that enough? And it's like, no, you've got to keep doing it longer than you think you can and that's where you start noticing the difference. So there's been people like that over the years and I've had an absolute privilege and joy to work with. So coming into the formal training of Foresight, you know, the fact that you get that you get introduced to tools and frameworks that make sense of of years of work and years of kind of complicated interpersonal dynamics and politics and things like that, which are often the things that actually drive how organizations and causes and movements work. It was just so it was so helpful to be introduced to some of those frameworks. So as you got into the foresight study, Kath, you obviously had plenty of opportunity to put the tools into practice. Can you tell us a little bit about that time and what sort of work you were doing and how you were using those tools? So I came across the formal models when I was at VCOS and we ended up doing a project with a number of people with Peter Hayward and and Josh Floyd from Swinburne and we had this group called the Community Sector Futures Task Group and it was really around trying to park out some time so that about 30 of us could actually think, try and think about the future for the community sector rather than be continually dealing with the, the stuff coming at us over the hill every day. And it was a really, I think we, we probably took on more than what we could really achieve, but it was a good energising, positive exercise of being introduced to some of the, the ways of thinking 
And subsequent to that, I then enrolled to do the Masters of Strategic Foresight. And the first unit I do, just because of the order of the year, um, wasn't the sort of traditional first subject, but it was foresight in organisations. We looked at the viable systems model. And for me, with with an ecological and biology background, it just worked perfectly for me to imagine our society or an organisation as a system model and as in a very, because it's designed in a very sort of human sort of form, really. Um, and that really gave me a framework that I could really get behind and think about in terms of, you know, where do we need to improve S5? You know, what's going on with the governance in this organisation? I mean, I was using it last week with an organisation. I had to explain it to this management team because they've got a whole lot of issues between their S3, S5 and S4, you know, in terms of their foresight, their governance and and um, how they actually run the place. And they were getting very caught up in policies and detail, which I was saying to them, look, I think what you're talking about here is what in a VS, you know, a viable systems model. This, what you're talking about here is S1, S2. You know, this is the this is the liver and kidneys and the internal audit functions you're talking about. It's not about S3. We really need to strengthen S3. So it was, you know, really, and a couple of them got it. Others didn't. You know, it's just a really useful framework for thinking about where to focus, where to focus the effort, and how to analyse problems and think about ways forward. There's a few other ones that I use quite a lot. I do a lot of visioning work with groups where um, sometimes it's the, you know, it's imagining a future and turning that into creative or tactile sort of processes, you know, so as we fondly call it, the craftoon sort of activities where you, you're creating a metaphor uh, or a picture or a structure about what's, what's our current state and what's our desired state. And I've noticed recently I've been using the Futures Triangle a lot and the reason I've been using it a lot is I think it really helps. It's less so for whole sectors or industries, like I've done visioning processes for like the whole sexual assault sector or, you know, the youth homelessness sector. And that, and that's really great exercises. But within organisations, I've been finding the Futures Triangle really, really helpful for organisations that have got a very strong cause background where they've been founded by people with a really strong vision and where now they're at the tipping point, where they're at the point where the old way of working and the founders themselves are now getting a bit older and they need to refresh, they need to move forward into um, into a new future. And I've often been then briefed for, well, we need to do a strategic planning day, but you're going to have to watch out for the, for the people down the back because these people have been on the board for a very long time and they're very anxious about where we're heading with this or, they, you know, there's, there's personnel in the room that are very anxious about these new directions and, and, um, and uncomfortable about it. And by using the Futures Triangle, and I've, I've done it a couple of different ways. Sometimes we'll start with the CEO talking about the push factors, you know, all the different funding agreements and all the different um, demands for different things and the work and, you know, the issues in the workforce and the turnover and all of that. I do find sometimes, though, if you're putting it into a visioning day sort of process, that gets you straight into the detail of the day a bit too quickly. So sometimes I've started, particularly where there are a number of founders or a values base where people are feeling that it's a bit challenged, I start with that weight of the past and I run exercises like a history line, you know, to get everyone to stand in a line with the person who's been there the longest at one end and the person who's been involved the shortest amount of time at the other end and get everyone to speak about why did you come to this cause or this organisation and why do you stay and what's next and then capture 
um, particularly the why, I then capture that as being the values of the organisation. And nearly always, A, people really enjoy the exercise, particularly if there's a few new people that haven't really heard the story of some of the people who've been around for 30 years. Um, so it's a very non-threatening, energising sort of thing that opens up some fun and laughter uh, and some jokes about, I don't know why I stay. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and um, so it really opens up a sort of quite energised discussion. But it also really affirms if the organisation's got values, which that's the whole point, by bringing forward, so why did you come in the first place and why do you stay and what's really great about this organisation or this sector, um, nearly always the things that are named are the things that will absolutely drive us forward. And so by being able to frame it as saying, we've got all this stuff going on, we've got all these demands for the future, we know what's happening with demographic change, or we know what's happening with um, the health issue that, that this organisation set up to deal with, or whatever the, the issue was, we've got lots of things happening, we know we really need to you know, move forward into that future. Let's just talk about that. But because whenever you talk about the future, people get anxious and they want to talk about the past. I find that it really helps doing that by doing it with the um, basically doing the weight, the pull and then the push as an exercise as three segments on a planning day. I've done it a few times now and it never fails to create a really good energizing discussion and a lot more confidence in the group about okay so this pool this vision that we're sort of heading towards we feel a bit more confident about that vision now and we've attended to all those pull and push things and what we're going to do about the turnover and the funding agreements and all the rest of it but we're starting to map out something where the weight of the past is actually helping to steer and ground the directions where we're heading to the future so I've had really good feedback about the value of that exercise. And it's not, you know, obviously there's, you know, you can talk about it in great academic detail, but when you're working with a group of people who are technical experts in some other field altogether, they don't necessarily want to hear about the technical you know, all the detail. Uh, and in fact, I actually had one client, this is a few years ago now, said to me, look, I don't want to hear about the technical detail of this, of the methodology you're going to do in the room. She said, you know, treat us like an ATM, just give us the money. And I went, oh, well, you know, there's a few things to happen before the money comes. But, um, but it was that clarity around you have to actually design a process around what's going to really engage people. And it's not about explaining detailed methodologies in ways where it makes you the clever one and they just get confused. And that's probably the thing in terms of how I'm developing my craft. That's probably the thing that I'm really focused on is really trying to bring, explain things and bring people along into processes and methods that where they feel comfortable and they feel engaged and they get something out of it. And then afterwards they might say, oh, that was a really interesting methodology. And I go, oh, yeah, well, there's a journal article if you're interested. But I, I really, that's that's behind, that's very much behind what I'm doing these days. And I really just try and apply the thinking. Same with Theory U, same with a whole lot of scenario and, and you know, those um, the work that you can do with thinking about different futures scenarios is great because of sometimes you haven't got an authorizing space to talk about undesirable futures you know the authorizing space is we really want to talk about where we want to go and what a great future it's going to be whereas when you run scenarios it means that you've actually got some license there to talk about what if it's not a desirable future and how will we deal with that so it, it you know it's, it's about how to work in a room and use methodologies that We'll take a group forward. We'll give people a sense of where they need to go. And then you can start moving into some of your more, you know, sort of let's crunch the let's crunch the business model now. But 
uh, it's the foresight tools that get you to the point where the business model, I think, is is valid and, and relevant and, and people engage with it. Right. And it would depend on where people on the briefing for the for the exercise that you're doing about how far they want to look in advance or what what sort of tools you're going to choose. Can I ask about what what pe- what's people's appetite for looking five ten years forward? Or are people a little bit nervous, tentative about that? And how do you manage that? Yes. People are tentative, I think, about thinking about. Um, When you think about all the things that are going on in people's day, week, year, and all the things that they're bringing with them into a room, to actually, to then introduce a whole lot of possible things that might be happening in five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, that just in itself, that is challenging. And depending on the setting, you know, if you're working with a government body, Um, you've got a four-year electoral cycle. And if you're working with a a for-purpose organisation, people would generally be quite nervous about moving beyond a five-year horizon. Um, I sit on a board that's been doing some work around rethinking what they do along the three horizons model, using McKinsey's three horizons. And that's interesting because that's been a quite an intensive process for for that board and for the senior management to to do work in in the visioning, in the planning, in the theory of change and a whole lot of different of um, pieces. And we're now at the point in that setting where people are willing to think about, well, what is the second horizon and what's the third horizon? And actually starting to think in some detail around what's the work we need to do now in order to move us to that third horizon. And my take on that is that you need to have a group of people that are confident in the leadership um, they feel like the things that have been promised in the past have been delivered. So we're willing to we're willing to be confident in ourselves as a group. You know that if we make a promise to ourselves as a group that we're going to achieve something, we feel quite confident that we will manage to do that. And that puts people in a better space to be able to envisage and um, and kind of think about um, something beyond. If people aren't coping well with what's happening right now, if they don't feel confident with the leadership right now, if they don't feel confident about their own ability to make things happen right now, you can do visioning, but it's more, you know, I sort of laugh and say it's kind of looking at the monkey, you know, here's the monkey. And that's actually when everyone's feeling stressed with each other, you can say, look at the monkey and have a nice visioning exercise to get people out of a very negative state. But it's not actually going to lead to anything directly because I think you've got to have that capacity in the entity that you're working with, the sector or the collaborative structure, whatever it is, that is built out of a successful execution, I find, before, you know, really thoughtful and confidence building longer term visions can be entered into. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Terrific. Would you like to say a little bit more about any of the other challenges that you've come across and any tools that have been helpful in difficult situations? Um, I've found... Different tools to get people thinking from different perspectives is fantastic because I've only ever worked outside of government and I've never worked inside corporate. I've done some work with with corporates and occasionally with people inside government where my role is to try and bring the outside in because I've spent many years as an external stakeholder. Yeah, When I added it up, it was over 20 years as an external stakeholder to different government and regulatory bodies. So I feel like I'm quite qualified to work with those bodies around their stakeholder engagement and to help bring the outside in if they're interested in that. So I've done quite a lot of stakeholder toolkits and stakeholder strategies for, um, for government bodies and for corporate bodies. And what 
I find is the challenge is that you can see as you walk in the room, they're going, who's this person? She can't walk in our shoes. Um, a, she's a she. So if you're working with engineer, male engineers, you, you know, there's an immediate distancing. B, I come from outside of their entity. You know, I'm not an engineer. I'm not an economist. I'm not a, uh, I'm not myself a senior public servant. So you're immediately walking in and, you know, there's a bit of immediate othering going on and I'm sure I do the same thing where I feel a bit trepidatious about walking in thinking how do I you know so thinking about ways to kind of lift those roles a bit differently so using personas to get people thinking about things from the point of view of a persona who's actually the client that we're delivering the service to or a customer of the business that really can lift things so that then I can I'm no longer the outsider, I'm the facilitator of them thinking about some of their outsiders or their customers or their stakeholders or the people outside. And that, um, I, you know, I've had a quite a few experiences of that now and that can work quite well. Um, whereas if it was me trying to tell them, you know, forget it. Whereas I think if taking people on that journey of thinking about, imagine mm. you're in this, imagine this is your situation. Mm. This is the name of the person. This is their life. Here's their photo. So this is a uh, role now play. What? They, you yeah. Ask yep. Yep. Yeah. So, so using role plays, using personas, using um, some different scenarios. I mean, I set a group off. I couldn't stay for it the other day. I said, before I left the room, I said, oh, by the way, uh, one of you's got a role play being the minister and the rest of you have to go and lobby the minister because they were all talking in circles when I was there about what they were, uh, what they wanted and what was important. I said, well, it doesn't really matter what you think. You know, one of you has to role play being the minister now and see how that goes. And I got feedback later to say that that exercise had been, it had been quite fun. The woman I'd I'd kind of teased and said, I think you'd be a great minister. I'll, I'll I'll hear later how you've gone. She was up. She was up for it. She was really going for it, and they'd had a really good. And it had really helped focus their mind about what they were trying to do, because they'd actually had to think about how are we going to explain what it is that we want to somebody that we want to agree with us. So that thing about trying to engage people or engage um, change really by putting people in others' shoes and using a range of tools and techniques to do that, I think can help. That's not in itself about foresight, I suppose. It's not necessarily the, the tools. It's not about where we're going to be in 10 years or 20 years or 30 years. It's all that stuff around change of, you know, change of mind, change of heart, change of will. And in order to do that, you can't just have a little chat where someone says, oh, that's an interesting idea. Next, I'll go on to the next meeting now. You know, you have to kind of think of how do you engage people more deeply than, oh, it's two o'clock, so we've got a meeting about housing now you know you have to think about okay so how do we do that change of heart change of change of will Kath you meet a lot of people in the course of your work from government bodies non-government bodies and people in the community generally I'm wondering what you are seeing yourself personally in the future and you can choose your own time frame really but um, 10 years 20 or 30 years how are you seeing the future unfold 30 years is a nice sort of big scary number really for me I'm still around in 30 years time but you know what what will my life work have been and and where will my child and possible grandchildren be you know those mm. sorts of things so it's it's quite a you know sort of relevant relevant number of years I suppose if I think about it from a, 
you know, when you do those technical projections and you look at the numbers as we all have and you look at all those exponential curves and where things are heading in terms of population numbers and inequality and globalisation and, I mean, I think one of the big things that seems to be happening right at the moment is moves towards authoritarian leadership in the Western world. You know, so when you start thinking about where could some of those trends and technology, where some of those trends could take us, even in five years, it that that's quite. I find that quite scary. Like when we first learnt about the different worldviews about thinking about the future, which was around the sort of moral conscience and dystopian futures and technology sort of optimists. That was life changing for me because I just assumed that out of my dystopian world, these people were just denying it. Whereas actually they weren't. They were they were coming at thinking about the future with a different worldview, and they were thinking about you know, in a very technologically optimistic way about all the good things that could happen in the future, whereas I was just busily thinking about, you know, all the trees that are going to get chopped down and all the rest of it. So I think the way of bringing in, so that this is all kind of a, an, an introduction to what I see, but it is about how do we think about it? You know, do, are we thinking about in terms of technical and numeric projections? which, you know, many people do work in the science of projections. And I certainly worked with, um, I've worked with a lot of people in the sort of world of science and, and technical over the years and technical social policy, technical economics. There's all sorts of ways of thinking about it in terms of the numbers. But then when you think about, so what happens, what happens to the humans in all of that and how do humans deal with those sorts of things? You know, I listened to speakers, there was a a speaker doing a circuit with health leaders last year who was talking about technology and um, it was just when there was quite a bit of media coverage about how robots are going to take everyone's job, particularly white collar jobs. You know, they were going to take the health administrator and the lawyer's jobs, not just the factory workers jobs. And this person spoke to a room of health executives saying, look, don't worry, it'll be all right. You'll still have it. You know, people like you will still have a job in 30 years because we'll have outsourced you know, we'll use technology to outsource the admin and, and we'll be able to insource humanity. And people go, all right, so what does insourcing the humanity look like? Which in human services and health is quite an interesting thought around how do we insource the humanity around health and how do we reduce the paperwork and reduce some of the ridiculous kind of regulatory burden that really is the things that really put people off doing human care and healthcare work. So it's quite exciting to think about what technology could do, certainly in social and healthcare in the next five years, if not 30, around um, enabling human contact. And then when I think about some of those big, the big wicked problems, again, because I've worked in policy, so I've been trained in wicked problems, and we think about climate change, and that's a big wicked problem, and we think about other issues and demographic change as as wicked problems and the intergenerational report that's all about all these poor younger people are going to be burdened with this huge crew of older people who are going to be using the health on a much lower proportion of tax base than um, than currently and I've been doing quite a bit of work over the last three or four years around social isolation and loneliness. Uh, there's been a bit of work happening in uh, the Victorian government and elsewhere around social isolation and loneliness as a public policy issue, which historically it hasn't really been a public policy issue. So it's been very interesting thinking about what does social connectedness look like? And at the moment, there's a lot of drivers away from that. There's drivers towards marketisation and individualisation of care, particularly in aged care and disability care and so on. And certainly in healthcare, 
a lot more you know, more individualized and technologically personalized sort of models. So where does that take us in terms of social connectedness? So I suppose my desired future, when I think about all of those things going on, my desired future is that we as humans, we will have navigated a way so that we don't we don't have to be so physically connect disconnected from those that we want to be connected to because we have technology kind of connections, if not physical, concrete, geographic connections. And there's enough human uh, rigor and enough human agency so that things don't control us. We get, as humans, we get to have a bit more of a say. And so therefore, there's a limit to how much global inequality will be caused by the top five people owning, you know, 95% of the global economy or controlling the global economy. So so I suppose I do have a an increasing sense of hope that humans will hold the right hold the right line and I do think when I was studying foresight 10 years ago I remember I, you know I was I very much aligned myself in that dystopian future space and at times felt very despairing and hopeless whereas now probably I'm moving more into that moral conscious whatever that is you know category which is really about having some hope and belief that humans can behave differently and that it, you know if 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 um if invited to think about things that they haven't thought about certainly when I do work around social isolation and, and disconnection it's a softer and less concussive sort of discussion like I've run forums with 200 people where everybody's just thinking really enthusiastically around reducing disconnection at local level how can we use technology in in better ways whereas I think sometimes on environmental issues it's got very concussive you know where you have these big political debates around what we're going to do about energy policy they're not yet quite moving us in terms of the big energy transition that's needed we're not we're not quite I mean we will be there in 30 years we'll absolutely will be there because it's starting to happen but not you know the sort of political debate isn't helping us at the moment but we will be there the energy transition will have occurred Uh, technology will be harnessed in ways that suit us and you know we just have to stay strong as social beings really Mm. don't we Mm. it's interesting because this interview is taking place in early december in 2018 and just in the last week we've had thousands of children marching in the streets here and in connection with school children in europe who've done the same thing and you know the response from our leaders not all of them but some have been very critical of this it's dispiriting isn't it to hear our leaders not even willing to listen to the voice of the next generation it's dispiriting at one level, but um, there was an article I read the other day about it saying anyone who says these kids are going to end up on the dole queue are wrong. Mm-hmm. And they did a little article about where are they now from some of the, you know, kind of secondary student activists from the 60s and 70s. Oh, my, you know, oh, that one's been premier of the state, you know, and right. another one's been, you know. So it's kind of all the amazing sort of civic service and careers that people have gone on to when they've actually arced up a bit at the age of, you know, 15 or 16 or 17. And I mean, I've got a high hope that the voting, the voluntary, at least voluntary voting age, you know, I reckon in another 10 years, I reckon the voting age, they're going to have to bring it down to 16 because there's an increasing civic voice from young people and they're not going to put up with it. And in a way, having a prime minister being the villain is perfect. Right. Because then people go, mm. great, mm. you know, mm. if that's what he thinks, well, now what can we do to arc up and point, you know, so it actually, I think it's just going to provoke further creative um, social action myself. Fantastic. I think I think it's a fantastic, I don't mind at all. And, you know, that prime minister will be gone quite soon. You know, I'm not worried about him. He's not going to be around in, you know, controlling things in 30 years, whereas some of those kids on the street will be. 
have, I think, um, all futurists or people who work in this space have been asked, what is foresight? Have you ever been asked that question? And if so, how have you explained it? I tend to explain it around methods and tools Mm. rather than ideas, because I think it can get a little bit abstract for people sometimes. So I'll say it's about different mindsets, tools and methods to think about the future and to help individuals think about the future, to help organisations, to help industries or sectors think about the future and to help, you know, whole societies think about the future, depending on how it's how it's run. But it's really around the tools and processes to to help groups think about the future. And when I explain it like that, people go, oh, that's interesting. Mm. Tell me more. Mm. And I don't get into theories of social change and the, you know, the two hour lecture we had of 30 different theories of social change. And I don't get into the more complex bit, but I it does seem to help if you just say it's, it's just tools to help people think about the future. That's all it is. And it's fun and it's great. said that you're very interested in social isolation and the human condition of loneliness, which seems to be increasing. I find this interesting and I wonder, I'm aware also that you've told us that you studied environmental science, so I'm wondering if these two things are sort of somehow connected. In my mind, I link a lack of connection, the human lack of connection. I I see that happening between people and I see it happening between people and their communities. I also see it happening between people and nature and people not knowing their place. I mean, we are nature. I wondered, is there something that you've seen in your work which you've recognised here too and which is drawing you to pay attention to? I'd absolutely agree that when I think back, so I was reading quite a lot around environmental education and earth education back in the 80s. Actually, a job I had in London before I came to Australia was actually taking primary school kids out into the parks in inner north London. And you have to lie on the ground and it was all part of the earth education model where you have to put shut your eyes and put your fingers up as you hear sounds. So you, first of all, you hear the train, then you hear the truck, then you hear the wind, then you hear the frog, then you hear a bit of water moving in the, in the lake nearby. And so it's a way of trying to help children who are in very urban environments think about um, their environment a little bit differently. And deep ecology is very much part of that. And uh, finding different ways to connect with nature is absolutely, you know, I think it's it's a fascinating area. And always bumped into, I mean, even in those days, the earth education model, which was very much came out of, I think it came out of like Camp America, you know, with lots of school aged children all going off on summer camps and, you know, the the camp tutors needed to find good things to do with these with to do with these children. And it's really quite fantastic in terms of urban environmental education. But it always bumped up against the technical knowledge side of, you know, let's catch some insects and count how many legs they've got and count how many wings they've got and no Milo, you're not allowed to pull their wings off, you know, and so it was you know, here's a petri dish, let's see what dirt we can find on it. So it was always kind of the technical science versus the the earth education model. And this is back when we were doing the urban spaces scheme back in the early eighties in London. Um, but what's it is interesting thinking about how do we connect as you know, how do we connect to our place, how do we connect to other people, um, how and what at what levels um, at what levels do you create those connections and sense of um, mutual interdependence? 
And I totally agree that the idea of community being a mutually interdependent um, notion is um, something which is, is really powerful. And public policy is really challenged by that because we need to have a volunteer strategy to, you know, to get some younger people to go and help the old people at home without actually acknowledging the value, the two-way currency of, of, um, um, of the way that older people actually are often the ones offering the help or the wisdom rather than the younger person who's dropping in the meal or whatever. So, so I think there's a, um, there's an, you know, public systems, it finds it really difficult to, to get that mutuality and reciprocity and, and kind of human connection into how those models work. But at the same time, um, you know, the public health researchers are telling us that social isolation will, you know, if you are very isolated and lonely, you are likely to die up to 15 years earlier and that your longevity, it is a public health risk. It's as, it's as big or bigger a public health risk as smoking. And that serious loneliness and disconnection is, um, you know, a serious public health issue that therefore governments need to do something about and can't leave it to communities to do something about. However, when I talk in community, people are very up for it. Like people love the idea that ageing is everyone's business. And the more people learn and understand about that, the more enthusiastic they get about, you know, is our club or group welcoming? And, you know, if people come into this, come into this space, are we welcoming towards them? Mm. Um, and you know, by raising that awareness, you know, it, it doesn't, it, it really lends itself. People get quite enthusiastic about about mm. the value of connection. How you, how you translate that across into big global wicked issues facing the Western world, I think that's kind of the interesting, I think that's fascinating. Like, how do you do that? And so that's certainly a question that I'm sort of carrying at the moment is how do you turn that very innate desire for connection with that which is close to me, how do I turn that into or how do we turn that into a wider source of systemic, you know, force to wealth towards well-being rather than a further um, splitting and, you know, that we're all just individual social media users. Mm. It's a really interesting kind of question. So at the policy level with organisations, are you finding that there's a less of a willingness to, to see that, to see the issue of loneliness at that level? I think different organisations see it in different ways. They see their roles and their job differently. Mm. Um, right at the moment, because you know, this interview is taking place in Victoria and traditionally local governments in Victoria have done a lot of, um, they provide a lot of community-based care um, and a lot of social programs for people um, of post-retirement age. And that's all, you know, over the next five years, that's likely to change very significantly because of new Commonwealth um, consumer-directed care reforms, which will, you know, is almost certainly going to lead to some councils getting out of direct care of, of older people in the home. And it'll be very much more, you know, ring the 1800 number and get an assessment and you know we'll give you an individual package so that's absolutely happening at the moment and over the next five years I think here in Victoria I think it's very interesting you know there's some very big interesting conversations around the role of government in this space and what local government's role is around what's their job in social connection because it is the level of government closest to community and it lends itself to you know, it really does lend itself. The question about what the role is of a state government or what the role is of individual organisations, certainly when, when I talk to people who work in um, drug and alcohol or in homelessness services, one of the biggest issues in drug and alcohol services is that the reason why people get really sick when they're 
addicted to illicit drugs is because they, they end up being excluded from standard health care. So it means that they don't go to the dentist and they don't go to the GP uh, because they're seen to be an addict and you will only give you services if you actually say that you, you want to get off the heroin and you want to get on methadone. Great, then you can come on down. And so there's a, you know, there's a whole movement in that drug and alcohol rehab area, which is around social connection is actually the, the cause, not the consequence. Or, you know, mm. it's, it's what's yeah. the cause and consequence and that it's the isolation and disconnection that creates, you know, and exacerbates addiction. But then until people feel connected and start to feel connected to each other again and to the community, why on earth? would you get off the thing that's helping you get through the day? Mm. So it's, it's a whole different thinking about mm. um, health services, which is that the connection comes first, rather than that health services should be all about the clinical, come for the appointment and we'll, if you, uh, if you let us know that you're willing to get off this drug, well, then, then we might help you. Mm. No, actually, the connection comes first and, and loneliness is actually the biggest issue for people who are very, you know, who are marginalised more generally. It's actually a loneliness factor rather than a lack of a roof or, mm. you know, so there's a whole piece there around um, what happens when people become chronically disconnected and lonely mm. and it absolutely exacerbates the issues around loneliness and mental health and, mm. and addiction. Wow, Kath, there's so much work to be done in this space. Are there futures type approaches that would help to shift that current thinking and for people in the policy area to be able to see more? Yes. I mean, I think it's the, it's those tools around thinking about the desired future. And I'm thinking in a practical sense, if I'm a health service or I'm a, I'm a local government or I'm a, a member of a community um, that's concerned about well, like a classic issue at the moment is law and order issues, right? So people come into these conversations with a range of kind of concerns and then actually sitting people and enabling a conversation which is about a desired future and opening up those conversations about desired future, that can actually, I think that can really take a conversation in a totally different way because it can turn a conversation away from what's the problem right now to what do we think would solve it and then actually being able to have a dialogue around, so if that happened, would that solve it? What, it? what is it that we're wanting to have happen? And I think you could probably have, I can envisage you would have a pretty, you'd have a sort of deliberative dialogue sort of model. You would absolutely have some provocations and some, some ideas from outside in order to refocus discussion. You would absolutely have people who have some influence on the system in the room you would absolutely have people who've been impacted by the system. Like I find young people talking about the kind of world where they it's their job to look after the climate. The same thing, um, young people who've been homeless, young people who've been in out-of-home care. Um, you have some of them in the room talking about social isolation and connection and uh, they're supported to talk about what kind of society do they want. That could be very, very compelling because it gives people a different sense of what's possible. And then once you've got that, then the issue is actually making sure to, as I said earlier in this conversation, it's not just about the desirable future, it's around do we feel confident that we could work together to achieve that together? And I think that's where some of this conversation is needed is how do we build the confidence that together we can do that? And that again, that needs a whole lot of its visioning, it's 
you know, it's backcasting from the future. What are the things that will have happened five years before that and five years before that and five? Oh, and now we're back today. So what are the things we're going to do today that are going to take us forward to the 10 to the 15 years? And there's, I mean, there's been some amazing projects that have really been designed out of community visioning um, and use community visioning processes to using sort of collective impact and other processes to bring people together. But then if you can actually create that vision and and do some of the work which is going to ensure that you get started on the path so that then you can build people then want to stay on that path and you can build community leadership you can build you know collaborative structures where there's a strong commitment and you get to the point where as we see with a number of sort of big I'm not sure if this is about social connection per se but um, it gets to the point where the confidence in the community that this is what we can do, we must do, we, we are doing it and we need to keep doing it, it gets to the point where no government would dare stop doing it. So they have to keep putting some money in or businesses have to keep supporting it or law reform, you know, the decisions make themselves because it becomes very evident where the law needs to be and that perhaps there's some changes needed or the policy. So it's almost like the policy decisions need to, it needs to be in a situation where the policy can make itself and the law reform can make itself. And to create that kind of expectation about how things work, you need to have people that are at risk of social isolation and loneliness or are themselves being in a position of it absolutely have to be part of that because they can make very compelling interventions into that discussion and they bring a bit of the heart into it rather than the othering. Kath, thank you so much. It's been wonderful to hear about some of the work that you're doing. You've been inspired for a very long time, but it's been great to hear how the tools and approaches from Foresight have helped you put your inspiration to work and make it more effective. So it's been great having you. Thank you very much for sharing all your thoughts and ideas with the FuturePod community. Thank you, because it is about having the ideas, but it's about being able to build the confidence to create the change. And you can envisage the change, but then you need the confidence to create it. That's what some of these tools, I think some of these tools and resources really help enable. So thank you so much. This has been an absolute privilege. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Mendy Yuri saying goodbye for now.